Good morning, everyone. Um, again, my name is Didi, uh, pastor of church planning, I'm getting ready to plant a church in South Durham this fall. If uh, you've not heard about it um, at all, it's not too much of a surprise. We haven't talked a lot about it yet, a lot of uh, behind the scenes prep work so far. But if you're interested, uh, if you live in South Durham and you're interested, please reach out. I'd love to talk with you more about it. Um, but enough about me. Uh, we are in the book of Daniel, and we're in Daniel chapter 7 today. And uh, we've gone through Daniels 1 through 6. And actually, just so you know, uh, you know, Daniel 7 through 12 is really the second part of Daniel. And it does not, uh, chapter 7 doesn't follow chronologically from chapter 6. Um, and this sort of a change of, of pace and focus in the book of Daniel here. And, and thus far, we've seen through Daniel and his friends, what does it mean to live faithfully to God while serving under an oppressive pagan empire? And we been encouraged to be faithful like Daniel. Uh, we've been encouraged to go to our ultimate hope, Jesus, the greater Daniel. Um, but right now, again, we make this change, and, and now we're going to see that Daniel is going to have these visions uh, revealed to him in dreams by God. And now Daniel is not the chief interpreter of dreams given to kings. Now he is the receiver of dreams given to him by God and interpreted to him by angels. And so this morning, I'm just going to read right now uh, verses 13 and 14, and we'll look at the rest of the text a little bit later. But if you'll stand with me, and I'll read these two verses, um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak in the power of your, your name. Speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we long to see you face to face and to be changed. So give us eyes to see you, and may our hearts be um, challenged and comforted and brought into the presence of Christ himself. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So our family has been discussing the book of Daniel week by week as we've been preaching through it here at church. And it's been really fun to see my kids ages 13, 11, and 9 uh, respond to the book of Daniel. So we'll just read a chapter with them and then just talk with them about it and see what they think. And I think even for us as, as adults, uh, accounts in the book, uh, like, like the book of Daniel, sometimes these chapters can seem really long and, and I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I listen and I'm going like, okay, like, that's a lot of details. Like, what is the main point of this? But I find that my kids, they don't listen that way to the text as they hear it read. They, they seem better at just sitting in the story, taking in the details and just feeling the flow of it and ponder all that is said in, in the story. Um, they're not rushing to make three points like us preachers do. They're not trying to figure out the nine applications out of the text. Just taking in the story. Um, they hear it like I might be reading to them from Lord of the Rings. Now, it's not a story like a, a fictional story that we're looking at today. It's a historical account given to us in the word of God. And, and yet we still have to come like my kids do with childlike faith and childlike imagination and, and, and put ourselves in, in the shoes of the characters and feel the flow of the story and imagine what God is saying in it. And so I encourage you to, to listen with that kind of faith and imagine, imagination like my kids do as they hear Daniel read. 
Now, this week as I was prepping for the sermon, my wife read chapter 7 as well, and she said as she reflected on the chapter that it reminded her of um, the old 80s movie, The NeverEnding Story. Now, I was told after the first service that this reference might be lost on maybe the generation after Gen X. Uh, But anyway, The NeverEnding Story is this movie that I watched as a kid in the 80s, and and uh, there's this scene that uh, is, is really powerful. But I remember watching this movie with my kids, you know, because Gen X parents want to reveal the great 80s movies to their kids. And, and it was so fun to watch them watch it with me. And they're just mesmerized. And it's like watching it with the eyes that I felt like I watched it with as a kid. And, and I remember this scene where Atreyu and Artax, his horse, is in the swamp of sadness. And it's like this, this scene that's burned into my brain from being a child. And he's like, Artax, fight against the sadness, Artax. I know for some of you it's going to take you back. But the fantastical nature of the never-ending story is, is bewildering to the eyes of a child. And Amber said reading Daniel chapter 7 was like riding that fantastic dragon creature with a dog face Falcor the luck dragon. You just feel like you have to hold on to dear life and see where this ride takes you as you hold on to this dragon creature with a dog face. And my hope for you as you listen to this sermon, as you hear this text read, is that you listen with childlike faith and childlike imagination like you're on a bewildering ride on a dragon creature with a dog face. So let's dig into this text, okay? And the first thing we'll see in this first section of Daniel 7 is the violent power lust of earthly empires is passing. The violent power lust of earthly empires is passing. We're told in verse 1 here that we're in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel is given visions in his dreams by God, and these visions are prophetic and predictive of future. Now, just a few words about prophecy, not Not all prophecy in scripture is predictive of the future. There can be a lot of confusion about prophecy in the church. In fact, most prophecy is not predictive. Most prophecy is really holding the people of God to the ways of God that has been revealed to them by God. It's holding them to their promises to God while pointing them to the promises, the greater promises of God that have been made to them. But even for predictive prophecy, Believers can overly focus on this detail or that detail and what does this symbolize and what is the historical event that this is pointing to. And in doing so, we can miss the main point of the story. So I hope that you'll hear the visions given to Daniel a little bit differently today as I read them to you. We have a very similar predictive prophecy in this vision as was given in Daniel chapter 2, that this was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar in this case. But the imagery is very different And so don't focus so much on what the details symbolize. Um, Sit in the story, imagine what is being described, and close your eyes if it helps you imagine what is being said. And again, I'm going to read verses 2 and 8 here and try to enter in with childlike faith and imagination. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now remember the great sea in the Old Testament is symbolic of chaos and home of the great beast Leviathan. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. I wonder if you can see it in your mind's eye right now. 
And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Can you see it in your mind's eye? After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Can you see it with your mind's eye? After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I wonder if you can see it with your mind's eye. And I genuinely wonder, what did you see as you heard this vision read to you from Scripture? What did you imagine of these fantastic beasts that were described? What did you feel as you heard them described to you? One scholar described these beasts as progressively phantasmagoric. I don't know what that word means. I had to look it up. It means that the beasts were more and more fantastic, more and more bizarre, more and more unlike what we know, more and more unreal, and therefore more and more scary. These images of the four beasts are not fluffy, cute animals. They're not cat videos that we secretly watch when we need something cute to help us pass our day. They are terrifying. They culminate in the image of the fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And ultimately, these four beasts symbolize the violent, powerless nature of earthly empires. And we know already in the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, we can think of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. And we know from history, our history lessons, the violence and powerless of these empires. We've also seen the passing nature of these great empires that have succeeded one another, who have devoured one another. But these four examples of earthly empires are just examples, and there are more earthly empires to follow from those four. And in recent history, we can think of colonial powers like the Dutch, like the Spanish, like the French, like the British. Um, but they're not colonial powers anymore. We could think of superpowers today or economic battle between the U.S. and China. We can think of regional battles in Asia between India and China. And in my own lifetime, I think of my own hometown of Hong Kong being passed from the faded British colonial power to the rising communist Chinese power. And in all of that, we see the continuing movement of violent, powerless earthly empires. But we have to bring it closer to home. It's not just nations. It's not just on that level that we see the violent, powerless nature of earthly empires. We have to look to corporations, to companies, to nonprofits, to school boards, even to churches. All of these can live in the ways of violent, powerless. Most of us and most organizations only want to be judged by our good intentions. But how do we reconcile our good intentions with ways of violence and power? Now, we all have power of some kind, and maybe some of us don't feel like we do, and 
those in the lowest rung of societies may think they have none. It's not wrong to have power, but let me give you a few examples. We can think of uh, positional power, power that's given to us by a role. We could be bosses or leaders or pastors or teachers or parents or shift supervisors at McDonald's. We can have economic power that buys us uh, a freedom, an autonomy that delude us to think we can be free from longing and pain. We can have relational soft power. Think of even in a dating relationship where uh, a girl likes a boy more than the boy likes the girl and there's a certain amount of power that the boy has then to just treat her whatever way he wants. Literally on the way driving to church, I thought of the song that's been kind of stuck in my head this week, the song by Olivia Rodrigo called Driver's License, where it's really about this girl who is singing about her ex-boyfriend and the power that he still has over her and her longing for her. And it's this vulnerable, haunting song. And the line that's repeated at the end of the chorus is, because you said forever, but now I drive alone past your street. She, he still has this power in her life. So the question we have to ask ourselves with the power that we're given is, how do we wield our positional economic, relational power? Do we do so for the good of others or simply for ourselves? Are we even aware of the, the powers that are at play? Are we taking responsibility for the power, great or small, that we have? Now, the feel of the power lust of these earthly empires and the vision is one of a continual lust, lust for more and more power and a misuse of that power, a devouring that's described by these beasts. And when we lust for more and more power, we will misuse power. But it's so subtle, right? And that's the way the devil wants it. We may, some of us, confess our misuse of power, and maybe every parent in this room can relate to that in some way and raise their hand for that. But I doubt that anyone in here, and in fact, I've never heard as a pastor, anyone confess their lust for more and more power. But think about it in this way. We can be happy to, quote, grow our influence in our company or on social media. We can be happy to grow our bank account so that we can have the economic freedom that we long for. We can be happy to grow in our EQ so we can have successful relationships in life. But who do we do all this for? Do we do that for God's glory, for the sake of others and their good, or just for ourselves and for those closest to us? We also might see our lust for power and misuse of power through violence. Misuse of power, in fact, is a violence. Again, not many people think of themselves as violent. I don't, I don't know, probably maybe five people would raise their hands in here if they were brave enough. And maybe you just think of it as like, oh, that time in college when I got really mad and I punched a wall. Maybe that's what we think of as violence. But Jesus has something to say about that. And he's pretty quick to expose our hearts on this matter. Jesus teaches that cursing someone in our hearts is in fact murder. Now, Jesus is not an unjust judge. Jesus is not stupid. Jesus can tell the difference between actually taking someone's life and cursing someone in your head. But let me try to illuminate that a little bit from something from my culture. Uh, maybe in our Western culture, we've become or we've lost a sense of what cursing is, but 
I kind of love cursing in my native Chinese dialect of Cantonese. It's very colorful. And Cantonese cussing is mostly literally cursing people. Cursing people to wish harm on them or to wish them an untimely death. And we could do that in colorful ways, long or abbreviated. So, for instance, I could curse you in Cantonese by telling you to go fall on the street. Or I could curse you by saying, I push on your lung, meaning until you stop breathing and die. So what Jesus is saying, though, is that cursing someone has the same violent energy as murder. Cursing someone is the same violent way of doing life as taking someone's life. How many of us can say we are innocent of cursing someone in our heart? Sometimes we speak ill of people, not just out of an impulsive passion, but out of a calculated harm even. And in legal terms, that's the difference between manslaughter and murder. And that's a pretty significant difference. Our legal system tells us a crime of passion is not the same as something that is premeditated and planned and calculated. Intuitively, we, we know this to be true in our hearts as well. Jesus says there's violence in our hearts. And so sadly, we often choose also to trust the ways of violent, powerless, rather than trusting the ways of Jesus because it just seems more convenient and gets the job done. And we so value productivity. The only comfort from this text so far about living in the ways of violent powerless is that these empires, big or small, secular or religious, are passing in nature. They have to. They have to be because you reap what you sow. The violent may flourish for a time and many may be hurt along the way, but at some point that violent ways will catch up to those people using those ways in some way, shape, or form. If you live by the ways of violent power lust, they will catch up to you. And remember again, though, that the violent, powerless ways of earthly empires is passing. I'm guessing by now you're ready for some hope. So let's go to some hope in this second section of the text. And what we're going to see here is the self-giving forever nature of God's kingdom. Daniel, in his vision, is taken from this bizarre vision of these four beasts coming, up the great sea, coming out of the great sea to this awe-inspiring vision coming before God, the Ancient of Days, seated on the throne with radiant purity and fiery power and thousands of people around the throne worshiping. And an even more important prophecy is given to Daniel here and to all readers in verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Son of man probably sounds familiar from the Gospels. It's typically used in the Old Testament, though, to describe one who is a human. Really, as it is. Human as distinguished from celestial beings or from a divine being or the divine. And this prophesied and promised son of man here, though, in this text is different because he's not merely human. He also comes with, quote, the clouds of heaven. And this phrase in the Old Testament is typically used to describe one with divine authority. And so this promised son of man in Daniel 7 is both human and divine. And so it makes sense to us then that Jesus' favorite title for himself is son of man. That in the Gospels, 80 times 
the, the, the title son of man, this phrase is used to describe Jesus. And the Jewish listeners of Jesus' time would have been very familiar with this term son of man. And they would have had to try to figure out, so is Jesus talking about the fact that he's just a regular human being? Or is he talking about the fact that he's the promised, prophesied son of man from Daniel 7 who is human and divine? They had to decide by faith. Do they think it was just another great rabbi, human rabbi before them? Or a divine son of man prophesied in Daniel 7? And we see in Mark 14, near the end of Jesus' ministry, in verses 61 and 62, that Jesus made it very clear while being interrogated by the Jewish high priest that he was indeed the prophesied and promised son of man of Daniel 7. So hear these words. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you should hear, I am who I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so they crucified Jesus for what they saw as blasphemy of claiming to be God. And all humanity then has the same decision to make. Is Jesus just another great wise human teacher or is he the promised fully divine fully human of Daniel 7 who would defeat the beast who will bring in God's kingdom forever and ever and put behind humanity all of these violent powerless ways or to put it more simply is Jesus who he says he is and can humanity really find hope in Jesus and his forever kingdom even in this passage, we see the kind of forever kingdom described as different from the earthly powerless natures of earthly empires. It brings together all peoples and nations and languages, as verse 14 says, but not in the way of earthly empires where one culture must be the dominant culture and ask all other cultures to assimilate into the dominant culture. It is a culture where what is good about every culture can exist together, join together by unity in Jesus. And so what's described here is the mystery of a God who is three persons in one God, the mystery of marriage of two become one flesh. It is the mystery of many different body parts becoming one body under the head of Jesus our Lord. Maybe you're here today and you still wonder, is God's kingdom gonna be just like all these other violent, powerless, earthly empires? Isn't Christianity an oppressive religion that's doing harm to society? That's what we're told today. And I'll say, and I can't go into much depth, but it's not meant to be. That's not the way of Jesus. If you are a seeker and a skeptic here today, I hope you can see the self-giving forever nature of God's, God's kingdom described in the word of God. And it's perfectly demonstrated by Jesus' life and his ways. Our failure to demonstrate this as Christians simply confirms our need for the forgiveness of Jesus and his saving work. We Christians have our need for forgiveness made clear to us. But let's take a look at Jesus. The Jesus revealed to us in the Gospels is completely self-giving, unlike the earthly empires that consume and devour he is one who is fully God and fully human. And he is one, therefore, then, that is willing and does fully love and fully suffer 
on our behalf. He fully loves and fully suffers because he completely gave of himself, emptied himself, came into this world, bored into this world to seek and save the lost. He fully loves and fully suffered because he gave up his life on the cross as a penalty for all of our wrongs, all of our misuse of power, all of our violence. And it's not just what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It is what he is doing and what he promises to do. There's so many connections in this text, in this prophecy to the book of Revelation, and we don't have time to go through it in detail. But the book of Revelation essentially gives the same message as the book of Daniel. That is to be faithful to God and the gospel of Jesus in the midst of suffering. To be faithful to God by not living according to the violent, powerless ways of earthly empires. So hear these words in Revelation 1 that the Apostle John introduces and expands on through uh, 22 chapters of Revelation. He says there, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That should sound familiar. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I love it when we get these little nuggets of the gospel described in different parts of the Bible. And these three verses do describe the gospel that we know. We see here in this text, these three verses in Revelation, that Jesus is the one who loves us. Jesus is the one who sets us free from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the one who has made us a kingdom through faith in him. Jesus is the one who makes us priests to God through his sacrifice. Jesus is the one who will bring in his forever kingdom. Jesus is the one who will bring justice to this earth. And we ourselves can be saved from that justice, from our own sins, through the gospel, through this good news. We have all in some way, shape, or form participated in the violent, powerless nature of earthly empires. Jesus has set us free to live according to his self-giving ways. He is empowered by giving us the Holy Spirit. The promised Son of Man will complete the work in us that he has begun and that he's now still at work doing in this world. So let's turn from those violent, powerless ways and turn to the ways of Jesus' self-giving nature and to rest in the power of the gospel that gives us both that peace and that power. Now I want to end with almost what's like an epilogue thought that's revealed in this text, and, and, and this is this. It reveals the bewildering nature of God revealing himself. The bewildering nature of God revealing himself. I want to ask you, have you ever woken up from a bizarre dream? You're half asleep and you wonder if what you dreamt is real. It feels real, but you know it's so bizarre it can't be real. Or have you ever had violent dreams? I know I've had violent dreams and I asked my wife if she did and she said she hasn't. She thinks it's a boy thing. I don't know. haven't done any studies. But I've woken from violent dreams, sweating and heart racing. I know it's a dream, but my body seems to be telling me something else. And I wonder if that's how Daniel felt when he woke up just bewildered. Verse 15 in chapter 7 says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
The last verse in chapter 7, verse 28 says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In chapter 8, Daniel's in year 3 of King Belshazzar's reign and he gets another vision, very similar meaning, different imagery of a ram and a goat. And at the end of chapter 8, the last verse, this is what Daniel says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Bewildered. Remember, Daniel has had these bewildering dreams interpreted to him by angels that he really sort of understood the meaning and the end here, and yet he's bewildered. These visions of Daniel and how they connect to the book of Revelation should leave us bewildered too. Don't get comfortable reading the Bible. Yes, the word of God brings life. But that doesn't mean that as we read it, we should always feel comfortable. There are bewildering things said in Scripture and revealed in ways that leave us feeling bewildered. We see this thread of Jesus, the Son of Man, from the book of Daniel to the Gospels to the book of Revelation. And we see this thread of Jesus, the Son of Man, that extends into the future where we know the end and yet we can't fully grasp at it. We have to hold on to it by faith in Jesus, the Son of Man. That is where our hope is, and we have to hold on with a sense of both bewilderment and faith. And so I would ask you this week, allow yourself to be bewildered by all of this. And in that bewilderment, see how you might find Jesus in it. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for Jesus, the Son of Man, the promised Son of Man who's fully God and fully man. The one who, Lord, does not work as earthly empires do by consuming and devouring, but instead gives of himself, who fully gives of himself for our sake. And as we come to the table, Lord, to partake of this meal, Lord, we will see displayed even more beautifully, even more powerfully, the self-giving forever nature of your kingdom through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.